Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to the Antarctic Sun Podcast, a series about science at the bottom of the world, supported by the National Science Foundation. I'm Mike Lucibella. Ice dominates Antarctica. It covers more than 99% of the continent's land and stretches far out into the surrounding oceans. And scientists are working hard to understand everything they can about the subtleties of the ice around the continent, because what happens in Antarctica can be felt around the world. My name is Ted Scambos. I'm the lead scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center. Scambos was part of a team that recently returned from the Antarctic Peninsula, a part of the continent that's been particularly affected by climate change. And they were monitoring the remnants of the collapsed ice shelf to glean a broader understanding of what happens when huge masses of ice fall apart, something that scientists are worried could become a lot more common. We were interested in studying an area of Antarctica that's been warming rapidly. Uh, the Larsen B ice shelf has um, changed dramatically in the last few decades as climate there has gotten warmer. Saying it's undergone dramatic changes is kind of an understatement. In 2002, we had a summer that was very warm. The ice shelf area was flooded with melt ponds, and that led to a spectacular disintegration of this large plate of ice on the east side of the Antarctic Peninsula. This was huge. In just a matter of days, almost the entire ice shelf, the size of Rhode Island, disintegrated. Its sister ice shelf, a little bit farther north, the Larsen A, fell apart back in the late 1990s. But scientists had never seen anything like the scale and speed of Larsen B breakup, an ice shelf that had been stable for an estimated 12,000 years. It wasn't necessarily surprising that it collapsed, but it was surprising that it happened as quickly as it did. This is Erin Pettit. And I'm a glaciologist from the University of Alaska. She was the principal investigator on the team that traveled to the area where the Larsen B used to be. And it collapsed in less than three weeks. And the only reason I say three weeks is because that's the, that's the time difference between the satellite images that we have. So we don't know what happened within that time. All we know is that it disintegrated into thousands and millions of tiny icebergs. That collapse took scientists completely by surprise. And they're still trying to figure out exactly what happened. But the disintegrated ice shelf left behind a small piece of itself that scientists have been probing for insight into the collapse. Well, one area in the southern part of this Larsen B region remained after that 2002 disintegration. And since 2002, it's evolved quite a bit. Uh, it's gotten much weaker. It's spread out with lots more fractures, sort of like an accordion that's being opened up. Covering the waters of the adjacent Scar Inlet is a lingering sliver of ice that is a shadow of the once mighty Larsen B. The Scar Inlet is a, it's a small ice shelf by Antarctic standards. It's basically about a thousand feet thick of ice that floats on the ocean. It's about the size of New York City, including all five boroughs, a little bit bigger than that. So we call it small, but it's actually still a pretty big mass of ice. Intrigued by the appearance of cracks and fractures, in February, Pettit and Scambos traveled to the region and set up camp. We were perched on this island, and it was a pretty low island, um, but we were perched on the peak of this island um, with a 360-degree view of the Larsen B embayment. Two-thirds of our skyline were the mountains of the Antarctic Peninsula, and we could see out into the open ocean across the sea ice, and so it was just stunningly beautiful. It was like being in a national park. We had this magnificent ice-covered mountain range <clears throat> to the west of us, um, huge ice blocks to the south side where this uh, slow-motion evolution of the Scar Inlet Shelf had been going on. Um, that was spectacular. But they weren't there to admire the mountains. They were there to learn what was happening with this mass of ice left behind from the Larsen B breakup and the thin layer of frozen ocean that abuts it. 
We've seen fast ice form in the same area that the ice shelf used to be. So we're going to get deep into the different kinds of ice in Antarctica. On the face of it, it seems like frozen water is just frozen water. But there are big, important differences about where the ice comes from and what it does. So fast ice. Yeah, fast ice is kind of an abbreviation, and a lot of people don't get it because this is ice that's actually not moving. It's not fast at all. But what they mean is that it's holding fast to the coastline of wherever it formed. And uh, that's frozen ocean, frozen seawater. If it persists through a couple of summers, it gets quite a bit thicker because of snowfall on top of the fast ice. Fast ice is also called sea ice because it's made of frozen ocean water. It usually forms every winter and then breaks out every summer season. In a few instances, it sticks around for a couple of years at most. But around the Scar Inlet, it stuck around for a lot longer than usual. Now, after five years, this fast ice is actually quite thick, three or four meters thick. It's thickening because of snowfall every winter, which mostly melts but refreezes and forms more ice on the fast ice surface. That's beginning to brace this ice shelf a bit and actually buttress it and beginning to um, um, act as a replacement for the ice shelf that's no longer there. The Scar Inlet and the former Larsen B are ice shelves, which are very different from sea ice. Ice shelves are vast slabs of frozen freshwater that are hundreds or even thousands of feet thick. They're formed on land over thousands of years as snow falls and collects into giant glaciers, which eventually flow into the oceans. Ice shelves like this are thick sheets of ice that flow from the glaciers and ice sheets on land. So they actually come from land and float out onto the water and form these thick masses of floating ice along the coastlines. It's this ice shelf that in recent years seems to have been getting weaker and weaker. Yeah, well, we were actually hoping to watch it collapse. (laughs) Um, We sort of expected to wake up one morning or to some afternoon when it was hot to hear a big boom and then have that trigger and continue like sounding like a, a freight train coming at us for you know, days to a week as the whole thing collapses into into millions of icebergs. And so we wanted to go there and see if we could capture that collapse and be able to measure measure what really happens. Because until now, the only way anybody has ever studied the collapse of an ice shelf is from, is from a few satellite images. Um, and we know that they happen dramatically and can happen very quickly, just in a couple of weeks' time. And... But we don't fully understand the process because there's never been any ground-based data. Their goal was to get that ground-based data. And they could tell that recently the ice in the Scar Inlet was looking more and more fragile. Yeah, so we've been watching this this little ice shelf for a number of years. We started working on it. Um, it was part of an, a big IPY, International Polar Year project. So we've been watching it for quite a few years. And from the satellite imagery, we could see that it was starting to get weaker and weaker and more and more cracked up, bigger rifts forming, just lots of changes happening. There had been a couple, of, a couple of bigger tabular iceberg events breaking off of it, which are relatively normal, um, but it seemed like there were more of these bigger iceberg events um, that, had, that had broken off, and we could just see it getting really weak. And we were hoping that these warm summer days and the, the strong western winds would create this kind of surface conditions that would cause this sudden breakup. They thought that this year in particular seemed like it would be their best chance. 
Basically, we thought that El Nino would provide a kick to the system and give us a different summer than we'd had before. We weren't certain it would lead to a warmer summer. We just thought that that would be worth the gamble. We anticipated that the El Nino event that was going on would adjust the climate enough to possibly kick that fast ice out, break it up. They figured that the long overdue breakup of the fast ice abutting the ice shelf would be the catalyst for a massive collapse of the ice shelf itself. The fast ice seems to be buttressing the weakening ice shelf, so if El Nino caused the fast ice to disintegrate, the collapse of the ice shelf behind it would likely follow. So how would that fast ice break up, and what would it look like? You get a strong wind event from the mountains that comes down over the fast ice. It actually pushes the water, because there's no sea ice um, shielding the water surface, actually pushes the water away from the front of the fast ice and tilts the ocean surface puts a hole in the ocean surface. Just like if you take a bowl of soup and you blow on it, you can make a little dent in that surface. Very subtly, the wind event will do that, and that tilt causes pieces of ice to fall downhill into the ocean and drift out. Unfortunately, even though they were hoping to see the fast ice break up and the ice shelf follow suit, That didn't happen, but because we brought some very sensitive instruments out, I think we have an excellent data set to evaluate just how strong the fast ice is and how it's interacting with the remaining ice shelf. They really were on the right track. They saw ice that was a lot more melty than it had been in any previous summer, just not quite enough to break it apart. And even though they didn't see the breakup they hoped to, they ended up with no shortage of data. So we, we brought a whole suite of instruments designed to look at uh, activity um, just about across the spectrum of uh, geophysical signals that you might get from an area like this. Probably the best instrument that we brought out was an uh, interferometric radar system that we could mount on the rocks overlooking the fast ice and the ice shelf. It would compare the image that it had taken with another one a few minutes later and actually detect millimeter scale movement um, in the fast ice or in the ice shelf. We had time-lapse cameras that would allow us to watch, um, visibly watch what, what changes were happening in front of us in terms of the iceberg's movement um, near our island. We brought seismometers so that we could pinpoint where areas of any fracturing uh, were occurring. We had hydrophones to listen under the water to the, the shaking and cracking and whatever was going on in, inside underneath the water. We brought an infrasound array. Um, the ice sheet can make a lot of noise, either uh, crevasses fracturing or snow bridges collapsing, uh, fern quakes, um, or sea ice bumping around, and all of those things <clears throat> produce a sound signal, if you take it down to the very lowest range, um, below actually what the human ear can hear, those sounds can travel great distances, and with an array of microphones, you can actually pinpoint where they're occurring. And in the end, they weren't unhappy with the results of their effort. It was quite a successful season because we got all the instruments set out, they all worked, and they collected quite a bit of data. And because we had instruments that would... um, record things sensitively enough so that we didn't have to have a disintegration in order to get useful data. I think we'll have plenty to say about how the system is evolving. We are learning a lot from from this um, this system, especially that the way that the sea ice actually we think played a very important role in this because it didn't blow out with the wind as we had hoped and it actually probably prevented and uh, or delayed is delaying and stabilizing this ice shelf for a few, a few more years. 
This is one of their biggest takeaways. They'd long surmised that the fast ice was bracing the massive ice shelf behind it, but now they have the -the on-the-ground measurements that can flesh out that theory. What ended up happening is that there had been, over the last five years, this slow growth of sea ice in front of the Um, in front of the ice shelf. And so it's not very thick, but it's just enough that it was able to stabilize the ice shelf, we think. This is our our working um, hypothesis right now. Which, if you stop and think about it, it's kind of amazing that the collapse of an ice shelf over 1,000 feet thick could be slowed by sea ice just 10 to 15 feet thick. Doesn't sound like it should be enough to really, you know, it's a David and Goliath type, (laughs) type system or where you just don't expect the sea ice to be strong enough to hold back this whole ice shelf or to slow down this whole ice shelf, but it seems to be doing it. And so one of the th- our goals is to take these data now and try to understand, well, exactly how is this tiny sea ice able to moderate the speed in this ice that's 100 times thicker? What mechanism is that sea ice really really using? Is it just suppressing wave action? Is it actually physically buttressing it up? Um, Is it changing the ocean circulation underneath there by capping the, the whole bay? This matters a lot because when ice shelves collapse, it can have a huge impact on the rate that ocean levels are rising. To be clear, ice shelves themselves are already floating in the ocean, so if they break up, their own ice won't affect sea level. But what happens is that the glaciers on land that the ice shelves were holding back start to flow into the ocean at faster rates. And this has happened before. When the Larsen B ice shelf broke apart, it had a huge effect on ice flowing off the continent into the ocean. The glaciers that had been flowing into this ice shelf and building it basically by by merging and floating over the ocean, all of those no longer had a uh, a breaking system in front of them, if you will, a, a kind of a plate of ice that was helping to slow them down. With the removal of it in 2002, they all accelerated tremendously. Satellite images showed that the breakup's effect on the nearby glaciers was pretty significant. It happened suddenly and dramatically um, in this area when the Larsen B broke up. Within a few months, we saw a doubling and a tripling of the speed of the glaciers. The images are like night and day. In fact, one of the problems is that um, the textures that you're using to map the glacier change so dramatically in that one or two month period after the ice shelf uh, breaks out. The, the, the glacier just suddenly is covered with new fractures that you can't get a match from before and after because it, the glacier is completely different. Those glaciers are still going faster and thinning and losing mass even though we're now 16, 14 years later after that event, almost 15 years later. And it, so that, that event still hasn't finished. Like it, it, it still is contributing to sea level rise because of the, the acceleration of these glaciers. And that gets at why researchers are so interested in the Scar Inlet. Not because it's a big, stable ice shelf, but because it's small and because it's ready to fall apart. And it's because what's happening at the Larsen B ice shelf and the Scar Inlet are not isolated incidents. Because I view this area as a great experimental case, that we want to see it evolve in this area as much as possible because it gives us our only insight into what might happen in the future if we don't adjust um, the trend at which uh, climate change is changing Antarctica in in areas of Antarctica that have much larger ice systems uh, behind an ice shelf. And so if we Um, can see this system evolve completely while we're watching with all of these instruments, 
that is a great thing for understanding parts of Antarctica that have bigger consequences um, in the future. There are multiple glaciers along West Antarctica that scientists are worried about. The ice shelves in the Amundsen Sea that hold back the Pine Island, Thwaites, and Smith glaciers have been thinning for years and could be nearing a collapse. If those ice shelves do disintegrate, these enormous glaciers would start flowing much faster into the sea, increasing ocean levels around the world multiple feet. So this is why there's so much urgency for scientists to learn what makes an ice shelf like the Scar Inlet collapse. Because it's a small system that we have a good data set for, we can use it to help understand the bigger, um, the bigger potential breakups of, um, and collapses of ice shelves and, and the, the glaciers that feed them. So, like I said, this is a small one that by itself won't have a huge impact on sea level rise, but because it's small and it's measurable and it's happening on a short time scale, it, it will help us understand the processes that then will help with our understanding of the Thwaites and the Pine Island area, because those are, those are the ones that will get us to three feet or more in the next hundred years. If scientists ultimately hope that a better understanding of what to expect will help Oceanside communities prepare for any predicted sea level changes in the coming years. Right now, the research team is pouring through their huge amounts of data that they collected from the Scar Inlet and starting their analysis. That's all for this month's Antarctic Sun podcast. You can hear the rest of our podcasts and read more stories about the ice, the science, and the people of Antarctica at our website, antarcticsun.usap.gov. Stay tuned for more podcasts, and later this year I'll be traveling to the frozen continent to bring you the latest updates about the science at the bottom of the world. Thanks for listening.